And before we read Daniel 1, and as you're turning there, I just want to give you a little background where we are. It always helps when you come to the Old Testament to understand a bit of the history uh, because you can put things into context and, and understand the flow of it a little bit better. So I want to do that for us before we read. Uh, once Israel became a nation, God called, of course, Abraham to himself and said, I'm going to give you land and descendants, and he gave him his son Isaac. Uh, then Isaac uh, had his children, and eventually you had the 12 tribes of Israel that came from Isaac's son Jacob. They were, uh, ended up in the time of Joseph in bondage, uh, in Egypt, and of course, God raised up Moses to deliver them and take them to the promised land. Joshua led them into the promised land, and through a time where they were ruled by judges, eventually they got a king. That king was Saul. Then God called a faithful king to himself, King David. And of course, that's when uh, the nation of Israel was formed and became its strongest under David and then Solomon. However, when Solomon died, the kingdom divided into two nations. You had Israel and Judah. Israel was the ten northern tribes, and Judah was the two southern tribes. The ten northern tribes were conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. They were unfaithful to the Lord and rejected God, and, and all kinds of judgment came upon them in 722. Judah hung on for another 150 years or so, and then it was, to, it was also conquered by another superpower. This time it was the Babylonians who who had conquered the Assyrians earlier. And this is where we find ourselves in the book of Daniel. Uh, these first two verses that we're going to read in just a moment occur in the year 605 B.C. The Babylonians have risen to power. They've just conquered Egypt in the Battle of Carchemish. So, teenagers, if you're studying world history, you might hear about the Battle of Carchemish, and you'll know what's going on there. But this victory opened the way for them to move on uh, into the area, the region where Judah was, and they did move into there, and they conquered Judah in three stages. In verse 1 and 2 that we're about to read describes the first stage of Babylon, uh, the Babylonians in, under Nebuchadnezzar coming and sieging, laying siege to Jerusalem and conquering it. The second and third stage occur in 597 and 587 in BC, B.C. And in each of these stages, people were deported from Judah and some were deported from Judah to Babylon. And Daniel is one of those people. Daniel was one of the brightest and the best and the Babylonians took those people first out of Jerusalem because they wanted to indoctrinate uh, those young leaders of the Israelites indoctrinate them in the way of the Babylonians to erase their culture so that these people would no longer uh, live as Israelites, but would become Babylonians in their culture, in their practice, and, and uh, be uh, gathered in to this great nation. So let's pick up the reading, Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. 
The Chaldeans were part of the Babylonian Empire, and they were uh, some of the wise people uh, known for their wisdom. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. But why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are, uh, are of your own age? So, why, so you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. There's a well-known hymn. Uh, maybe you've sung it. It's called Dare to Be a Daniel. And I don't care for it very much. So we're not going to sing it. Uh, that's a strange way to start a, a, a sermon, I know. Uh, but it says this, it says, Standing by a purpose true, heeding God's command, honor them, the faithful few, all hail to Daniel's band. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. I believe the hymn writer, uh, who has written many wonderful hymns, I believe he's falling into a common temptation for anyone reading the Old Testament, anyone studying Characters from the Old Testament like Daniel or Jacob or uh, uh, Isaac or Abraham or Moses. You look at these men and their resolve, their faithfulness, and then we look at them as an example to follow. And that really uh, is a wrong way to approach the Old Testament. These are not just moral examples for us to follow, but really they, they're pointing us you know, to something greater which is their God. So instead of uh, saying, honor them, the faithful few, all hail to Daniel's band, we should say, all hail to Daniel's God. I want to resist that temptation to turn this series of sermons into just moral lessons that we can be like Daniel. No, we want to, we want to be like Daniel because he was a faithful man, but we want to get behind that to see what God was doing in his life to make him 
a, a moral example for us to follow or a, or a great example of faithfulness for us to follow. Well, as I said before, in our text today, we find Daniel living in exile in the land of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar has become, begun his conquest of Judah, and uh, they've completed the first stage of that, and he has taken into captivity, as verse 3 tells us, some of the some of the people of Israel, some of the royal family, some of the nobility, some of the youths without blemish, these were the, the cream of the crop that were brought into the palace. And they were there to learn about the Chaldeans, the Babylonians and their ways. So basically Nebuchadnezzar is brainwashing these young people. Uh, he is not only using military force to conquer Judah, uh, he is also seeking to change the values and beliefs uh, of the young men uh, and women of, of Jerusalem to get them under the, their influence. If he can get these young men to buy into the Babylonian way of thinking, then he can use Judah's own leaders to rule over them. It was a very clever strategy that he had, and it's kind of the same thing that's being done in our day in colleges and universities through the United States, uh, brainwashing our children to not believe the things that are true to God. Well, the question for Daniel and his friends as they are in these circumstances is how do they stay faithful to God in an environment that is hostile to their beliefs and values? And the question is answered by Daniel's life. He does so. He navigates through this hostile environment with great wisdom and faithfulness. And we can learn much from Daniel because like him, Christians today live in a culture that is at odds with our faith. Hopefully, we who are Christians recognize that there is a difference between our beliefs and our values and those esteemed by our culture at large. Hopefully, you see that. I've heard many of you complain about it. I've complained about it myself. How do we navigate through this hostile environment? How can we live wisely in these difficult days, in these difficult circumstances? And we can look at what the text says about Daniel and his friends, but the book of Daniel is really all about God and what he did with them. So I began to look at what the text tells us about God, and I noticed that in three places in chapter 1, it tells us that God gave. God gave, you see it in verse 2, verse 9, and verse 17. So how can we live faithfully wisely in difficult circumstances, in a hostile environment? The short answer to that is, and this is the point I'm going to make today, is that it is by grace. It is by sheer grace. We need God's grace for living for him in these days. We need him to, to give us everything that we need to do so. So I want to make three points today. I'm sorry I didn't give you a little outline. I, my printer ran out of ink and I ran out of time to produce it for you. But here are the points. First, God gives us our circumstances. Secondly, God gives us grace to be faithful in our circumstances. And third, God gives us grace to be useful in our circumstances. So first of all, God gives us our circumstances. We read here in the first few verses that something terrible has happened to the people of God. A foreign nation has come in and conquered them. Daniel and his friends are taken from the shadow of the temple there in Jerusalem and forced to live in a land that worshipped false idols. Not only were the temple vessels stolen and taken to Babylonian temples, but the Babylonians will actually tear down the temple of God eventually. 
Daniel's homeland is destroyed by these oppressors, and now Daniel has to live in a land and in a culture that is opposed to everything he holds dear in his heart. Now we might wonder why this would happen to God's people, the one true and living God's people, the God who is all-powerful and can destroy his enemies with a word. How could these foreigners with their false gods gain the victory over the people of the true and living God? Verse 2 tells us, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, and some of the vessels of the house of God. God gave them into his hand. It was God himself who allowed this to happen. This was no accident. God was not surprised. Of course, we can go back through the Bible and see that God was bringing judgment on his own people for their serial unfaithfulness to him. Time and again, they worshipped idols and false gods, So God sent them a wake-up call in the form of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. But God was also doing a great thing in that. Through Daniel and the others, he was expanding his kingdom into another land. Daniel and these three others are going to be used mightily by God for many years in this foreign land. In fact, in just a few chapters, Nebuchadnezzar himself through Daniel's influence and through God working with him, will be praising the God of Daniel and extolling his greatness. In fact, our call to worship today were the words of Nebuchadnezzar giving praise to God. So Daniel's circumstances were under God's control. Your circumstances are no less under God's sovereign control. And we need to understand that and remember that. Today you might be in difficult circumstances and wondering where in the world God is. I'm sure Daniel may have wondered that as he was being shipped off from his homeland. Maybe you feel abandoned by God. One thing we can learn from this passage and the rest of the Bible is this. There's nothing accidental or incidental in the life of the children of God. Nothing is accidental. There's nothing that is random and senseless. There's nothing that surprises God. We may call some things accidents, but God never calls anything an accident. He's always in control. Now, we certainly do make choices, and when we make bad choices, there are often negative consequences for ourselves and possibly others. God allows these things to happen. We may not fully understand his purposes, and sometimes it may all seem senseless. However, God tells us in his word that he is in control of everything, Nothing is an accident. And all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, even the bad things. So nothing's an accident. And nothing is incidental, which means everything matters. Incidental, uh, there's a a way I can describe this word in in football. Uh, A defender is not supposed to hit a receiver while the pass is in the air. He throws a forward pass. The the defender can't hit him first. And if they do, it's a penalty. It's pass interference. But sometimes the receiver and the defender get tangled up. They bump into one another. And no penalty is called because the referee decides that the contact was not significant enough to make any difference in the play. The bumping was not significant and didn't change the play. Therefore, it's called incidental contact. Incidental contact. It, It didn't matter. It was no big deal. When I say there's nothing incidental in the life of the children of God, I mean that there's nothing that happens that is insignificant or does not matter. Everything matters. Everything is significant. Everything has meaning. 
Things may seem incidental. They may seem small and insignificant, but God can use them for great purposes. And we aren't wise enough to figure out which ones might be incidental or not. Because if you just look back on your own life, some of the greatest things that have happened to you have occurred through seemingly chance, incidental, small little circumstances, but your life has taken a vast turn because of that one small thing. I mean, I randomly chose to live at a certain apartment complex when I was in college. I didn't think anything of it. It was available. It was close to campus. And I had no idea that somebody else also chose to live at that apartment complex. And we happened to meet, and we happened to get married eventually. So, I mean, a random decision, one that you didn't put a whole lot of thought into, can change your life forever. So there are no incidental things in our lives. God is in control. He's working everything for his purposes. Now, maybe you've made some bad decisions, and maybe your life is a mess as a result of that, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Christians can certainly get themselves into difficult circumstances by their uh, own sin, and that is exactly what's happening here in Daniel chapter 1. The people of God had made a big, fat mess of things. But God is doing something in their negative circumstances. He's seeking to turn his people back to himself, which he does, to, to save a remnant for himself. He wants them to repent and he wants to bless them. He has a purpose for them uh, where they are. He wants them to live for him where they are. It's not an accident that you're even here today. It's not an incident. It's not incidental that you're here today. It's not a small thing. If you're turned from God, if you're living in sin, if you're running from God... This message is for you. If your life is a mess, God is speaking to you and telling you to turn from your sin. Uh, God is sending you a wake-up call, just like he did in Daniel's day. He wants to welcome you with open arms, and that's why he's doing that. He wants to bless you. He has a purpose for you, wherever you may be. God has a purpose. God's always at work. God is at work even now in this place, and we need to remember that and be encouraged. We find ourselves living in a culture that's hostile to the... It's not an accident. And what is God doing? We need to think about those things. God is in control of these circumstances in which we all are living today in 2013 here on the Gulf Coast or wherever you might be living. So God uh, has given us our circumstances just like he gave Daniel his circumstances. Secondly, God gives you what you need to be faithful in your circumstances. Verse 8 tells us that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or wine. Now we're not sure why this food would defile him or why Daniel made this the point where he would not compromise. Uh, you know, he didn't balk at the name changing. They changed the name, the Hebrew names uh, of Daniel and his friends to Babylonian names. That, you know, Daniel's name is, uh, you know, in the translation of that, it, it includes God's name. In his Babylonian name, it includes Bel, he's called Belteshazzar. So he's, his name no longer reflects God, Elohim. Uh, it reflects Bel, that God. So every time his name is called there in Babylon, he's, he's reminded of another God. He's called by the name of another God. He does, that doesn't bother him. So we're not sure why, because there's wine, and wine was included in the foods that they were allowed to eat. Uh, maybe, maybe this uh, food had been offered to some of the idols, because 
We don't know that these things were violations of the Jewish food laws. But it really doesn't matter. The important point is verse 9. Verse 9 says, God gave, once again, God's grace. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. But the chief of the eunuchs doesn't actually give him what he wants. He asked for a favor from the chief of the eunuchs. And then, really, the favor is that he doesn't eat this food. The chief eunuch says, you know, if I do that and you all end up, you know, not flourishing, then it's off with my head. So he basically says, I can't do that. He doesn't get what he wants from the chief of the eunuchs. So what is the favor from God? What is, what is, what is it that God gives them? Well, Daniel is allowed to continue on in the program because the favor he has with this eunuch keeps him from being kicked out of the program altogether. If he, had, he didn't have favor with the eunuchs, he would have never asked. Uh, or if he would have asked, he would have probably said, well, if you don't want to eat the food, then get out. Get out on the street. You're no longer a part of this, this program. But Daniel is allowed to remain and go through another channel to be a faith, faithful. And again, God gives. Verse 15, at the, as he approaches the steward, and the steward allows him to do this 10-day experiment. And it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. It's mentioned because it's not possible. Uh, they, they were not eating the food that would have made you look better and stronger. So God gave Daniel what he needed to be faithful. God worked. God did something great. To, to allow Daniel to be faithful to God in those difficult circumstances. And the same is true of us. You know, we are in difficult circumstances. We are tempted to compromise morally in our lives. What we need to recognize is that we can't do it on our own. We need God to show us a favor, to show us grace, so that we can be faithful, to help us in our difficult circumstances to, to faithfully walk with him. And, and God has promised to do that. No temptation. Uh, we have not faced any temptation that is too much for us, but temptations that are all common to man, and God is faithful. He will not allow us to be tempted more than we can stand, more than we can, more than we can deal with. So God has given us our circumstances, and he will give us what we need to be faithful in those circumstances. So when you are faced with compromise... The thing to do is to cry out to God for help. Give me, give me grace, Lord, not to succumb to that sin, not to fall into that compromise. I need your help. Well, the third thing, God gives you not only what you need to be faithful in your circumstances, in the circumstances that he's given you, but he also gives you what you need to be useful in your circumstances. Look at verse 17. It goes on to tell us that Daniel flourished and he was... Ten times better than everybody else. Why? As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the, they were brought before the king, and the king spoke to them, it was found that in everything, every matter of wisdom and understanding, they were ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. I mean, they were in this program for three years. 
and they've already surpassed people who had been in it all their lives. Why? Was Daniel just naturally clever? No. Verse 17 says it was because of God's grace. God gave them the skill to do that. And of course, it's true of us as well. You know, it wasn't Daniel's resolve, though that's a good thing to have. It wasn't Daniel's cleverness. It resolve, willpower, your own natural abilities, they only take you so far. And it's not very far. I mean, just think about it. How many times have you resolved to change, or resolved to do different, or resolved not to compromise, and bang, you did? Or fall back into the same patterns of life that you've been trying to get out? You've tried to resist that temptation only to fail and sin again. You have to recommit your life to Christ. How many times have we done that? Now, certainly we must change. We must resist temptation. We must be committed to Christ. But, and I'm not advocating some let go and let God theology. The principle I'm advocating is this. You can only do so, you can only be faithful by God's grace. You need divine intervention by way of grace and by way of gifts. Paul tells us that everyone is given a gift. So God gives us what we need to be useful in our circumstances. Paul tells us he's given us spiritual gifts to use so that we can use them for the building up of his kingdom, his church in the world. Everyone has at least one to use. So if we want to be useful, it's already stated that God has given us what we need to be useful. But we have to see that it's by grace. It's not because of our natural ability or cleverness or, or our willpower that we have, our self-will, it's by God's grace. And until we see our own inability and brokenness and, and uh, lack of will to do what God would have us to do, and, and until we see that Jesus is the true Daniel, he, he, is the, he is what Daniel's pointing us to, the true and faithful and useful one for us, until we rest in Him and trust in Him and look to Him to supply us with what we need, then we will never be resolved to do anything at all. As a Christian, Christ's faithfulness his entire life and all the things He did for His Father are credited to you. He was even more faithful than Daniel and is credited to us. So our standing with God is secure. And then He's going to continue to give us grace to be used by Him, to be a bright and shining light in this world to be faithful to him in the face uh, of this hostile environment in which we live. Jesus faced temptation just like Daniel in his entire life, and he was faithful. Just like Daniel, Jesus was tempted by Satan to forget who he was and to live the easy life. Satan said in Matthew 4, Jesus, you haven't eaten in 40 days. Turn these stones into bread. Or Jesus, turn your back on your heavenly Father and worship me. And like Daniel, Jesus remained faithful. But unlike Daniel... Jesus did it for us, to extend grace and mercy to us. That's who we need. We need His grace and His mercy to be faithful, uh, to be useful in our circumstances as we live in a hostile environment. So we need God's grace. We have the means of grace. What I'm doing now is a means of grace. We're reflecting on God's Word. We're, we're trying to work it into our lives. We're asking God for help as we look to Him and say, Lord, what would you have us do? How would you have us live? Uh, what, what, are, what are you saying to us? So 
Preaching the Word and reading God's Word is a means of grace. It's a means for us to understand what is true, what is right, uh, how to live, what God's will is. So that's a means of grace, but we also have this table that we're about to partake of. And I can't fully explain uh, how that's a means of grace, though we're, we're remembering Christ and His great sacrifice for us, and that strengthens us. But mysteriously, we're partaking uh, of the body and blood of Christ. We're communing. We're becoming united to Him. It's a, it's a sign and a seal uh, of His grace. It shows us His grace, and it seals it to us. We grow in grace through participating in this table that we have before us. So we need grace. So as we come to the table, as we hear God's word, uh, we're asking God to help us to grow in grace so that we can be faithful and that we can be useful in these hostile days in which we live. Let's prepare ourselves now for coming, into God's, uh, for coming to God's table by joining together and singing Grace Greater Than Our Sin. <laughs>